This is a HeadGum Podcast. Hello, and welcome to Good One, a podcast about jokes. I'm your host, Vulture Senior Editor, Jesse David Fox. Our guest this week is Mike Robiglia, the comedian behind beloved one-man shows Sleepwalk With Me, My Girlfriend's Boyfriend, Thank God for Jokes, and the new one, currently on Broadway, as well as the director of a film version of Sleepwalk With Me and the movie Don't Think Twice. It's around the release of Don't Think Twice that I first met Mike when I profiled him for New York Magazine. Though this didn't make into the piece, I was fascinated by how diligently he thought about all aspects of his comedy. For example, we had like an hour-long conversation just about where he wanted to put the cameras to shoot the film version of Thank God for Joke. And more than anything, Mike, who is known for his long-form storytelling, put so much work into his jokes. He might be telling a 14-minute story about something that really impacted him emotionally or psychologically, but he sees every detail as an opportunity for jokes. For this episode, we talk about the story that was really a breakthrough for him and this form, Celebrity Golf, from My Secret Public Journal Live. Before his one-man shows came out, this is the joke that helped him nail down what Mike Probiglia comedy really is. And specifically, as performing this, that Mike found the seven-word catchphrase of sorts that would go on to define all of his comedy. I know, I'm in the future also. So, here's Mike Robigla from 2007 telling his celebrity golf story, followed by Mike and I in 2018 telling the story of writing it. Gonna do a little something different tonight. I, uh, I'm gonna tell you some stories from uh, something I write called my secret public journal. And uh, it's, uh, yeah, some of you guys know it. And, uh, and it's a blog that I write. I'm always embarrassed to tell people I have a blog because everybody has a blog about anything. People will just be like, today I went to JCPenney, you know, and like, there's one comment, JCPenney, eh? You know, and I'm like, that's not a blog, that's a text message. And uh, the, my blog is, they're, they're true stories, I have to tell you that because a lot of times people come up to me after shows and they'll be like, was that true? And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, was it? And I don't, I don't know how to respond to that. Like, I guess I could say it louder. Like, yeah! They'd be like, it's probably true. You said it louder. First story I'm gonna tell you is about the worst show that I have ever had in my life. I think that's a good way to kick things off. Uh, it happened this year, I was asked to perform at a charity golf tournament in New Jersey. I had to wake up at six in the morning and it, I have a hard time waking up in the morning. Some people don't understand that. Some people get out of bed like they're getting off the bench at a basketball game. They're like, all right, let's do this, you know? <laughs> I'm like a lame cow in the road. I'm like, Like when I'm staying at a hotel, I have to call the front desk and be like, can I have a wake up call for 7, 7, 10, 7, 20, 9, 30, and 1, 30 p.m.? I literally feel like when I go to bed at night, it's a different human being that enters my body for the night shift, and I call him Sleepy Carl. That's my guy, you know? And he's a terrible employee, but he's a great dude, you know? He's always like slobbering in my pillow and muttering about Vietnam, and 
He'll always try and talk me out of waking up. He'll be like, why would you go out there when you could stay here and ride on a Ferris wheel made of pizza? And I'm like, that sounds amazing, Carl. You're getting a raise. So I woke up for this charity golf event, and I have a, I realized recently that I'm not like a good adult yet. Like, I think if you're a good adult, you like plan your outfit according to what will occur when you leave the house. But I don't have that part of my brain. I'm just like, one outfit, forever, you know? <laughs> so I went and I played golf, and I brought my brother Joe, and uh, Joe is, Joe's kind of like a bad entourage member. He's never like, you the man, Mike. He's always like, I don't know what dad would think about this. And do you think they have any more shrimp? You know, that kind of thing. But uh, we showed up to play golf and they paired us up with these two other people. And it was a celebrity tournament that people were like, who do you think our celebrity is going to be? And, uh, and I was... <laughs> <laughs> and Joe and I were like, yeah, who do you think our celebrity is going to be? And then I'm like, oh no, I think it might be me. And then like I'm apologizing to these people. I'm like, I'm really sorry I'm your celebrity. If you think this is disappointing for you, you can't imagine how I feel. So I'm like apologizing the whole day. And then at the end of the day, like sure enough, my pants are all wrinkled and I have to be at this, performing this semi-formal banquet. And I'm like, what about one outfit forever? I thought that was a good plan, you know? And so here's what I do. As damage control, I go to the locker room to iron my own pants. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's a pretty good plan. And. Uh, I find an iron, but I couldn't find a board. So I take off my pants, I'm just ironing them on a bench in the locker room in my underwear, which is a dead giveaway that these are my only pants. And just like ironing my pants and this old guy walks up to me while I'm ironing and he's like smiling at me. Like, real big smile, you know? Like a politician smile, right? And I realize that is Rudy Giuliani. Yeah! And uh, I wasn't self-conscious, because I was like, you know, Rudy Giuliani's iron pants. He knows what I'm doing, you know? I, if it were George Bush, he wouldn't know what was going on. He'd be like, what do you got there, telephone? calling your pants, <laughs> you know. So I'm ironing my pants and I put them on and I go up to the event. And this is where the trouble really begins. Um, it's important for me, before I tell you this part of the story, to remind you uh, that you're on my side. <laughs> I said to the woman in charge, I go, what's the format of the show? And she goes, well, there's two speakers, and then you, and then a raffle. And I was like, well, that's, you know, that's exciting, because I've never opened for a raffle. And um, 
I'm trying to stay optimistic, you know, and I'm sitting in the back of the room with my brother Joe, and the first speaker comes on the stage, and he's an 11-year-old boy who survived leukemia. I know. He's not funny at all. He focuses primarily on the leukemia, and everyone is crying. Literally, everyone is crying. I'm even crying in the back of the room for two reasons. One, the kid, and two, for me. Because uh, I have to perform comedy, and it gets worse. Because Joe leans over and he goes, this ain't looking so good, Mike. I said, I concur. The second speaker was Hall of Fame quarterback Phil Simms. Uh, and yeah, he's got, a, he's got one fan here. Uh, but he's a, he's a broadcaster, and he's a, he gives an amazing, inspiring speech. And he even th sprinkles in a few jokes about golf. They were similar to jokes I had thought of about golf that day. It was like watching the last drops of my joke canteen drip out onto a desert of cancer. And He gets a standing ovation, which he should have. Clearly the show is over. Surely there can't be anyone more famous than Hall of Fame quarterback Phil Simms. But wait. There was. It was Mike Birbiglia who had no business being at this event. I know there are some entertainers who might have risen to the challenge, and I would love to be one of those entertainers, but I am not. As a matter of fact, I have a habit in my life of making awkward situations even more awkward. Like, I've said this before, but like, a few years ago, I was moving a new bed into my apartment, and this woman who lived in the building opened the front door for me with her key, and she goes, I'm not worried because a rapist wouldn't have a bed like that. That's how she started the conversation. Now, what I should have said was nothing. What I did say was you'd be surprised and there's nothing you can say after that. You're just like, see you around the building, you know, that kind of thing. I've thought about this a lot and I think there's something wrong with my brain where I don't have an on-deck circle for ideas. It's just batter up, you know? And a lot of the ideas are bad and they're at the plate going, I don't know about this one, Mike. And I just turn into this drunk Little League dad. I'm like, you go take some cuts, son.
As a comedian, when people laugh, it's very, it's very exciting. You know, it's a very neat thing. And uh, when they don't, it feels like you're performing jazz. Because uh, they're kind of bobbing their head and looking to the side. And uh, sometimes that's okay. I'm like, I like jazz, you know. But then I get worried because I'm like, sometimes jazz sucks. What if I'm the Kenny G of comedy? You know, like, what if I think I sound like this? Like, and in fact, I sound like this. Because you know when he plays that song, he thinks he's rocking. He's like, I'm feeling it. Everyone's like, Kenny, that song sucks. He's like, I know that one sucked, but how about this? No, 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 no. Kenny, that's the same song. You're the worst musician ever, and we're your friends. This is an intervention. This is a Kenny intervention. So I'm on stage at the charity golf tournament and I'm just Kenny Jean it up, you know? I'm just for 10 minutes, just no, 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 Just blowing that horn, you know? And, and I don't want to fail. I mean, that's a really important point in this story is that I want, these are good people and I want to succeed for them, but I just can't, you know? And so I think to myself, why don't I cater my material to this specific event. And everyone has been talking about cancer. I know. I'm in the future also. I had that thought on stage for about one second and then better up! I said to the audience, a true story, I said I went to the doctor and they told me there was something in my bladder and whenever they tell you that, it's never anything good, you know, like we found something in your bladder and it's season tickets to the Yankees! That was the response I was hoping for. But it was a lot more na 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 At that point, I just threw in the towel. I mean, I was just devastated. I, I thanked the audience and apologized simultaneously, which I've never done. I was like, thank you, sorry for ruining your event. And I just kind of walked off. And I was so upset, and I, I, I walked over to Joe. And I go, Joe, we are leaving now. And that's when Joe said, and I quote, Mike, I can't. They're just about to start the raffle. And because everybody left, my odds are amazing. And that is the worst show I have ever done in my entire life. Yeah. So.
And we are here with the the man behind the joke you just heard, Mike Probiglia. Oh, wow. Thank you very much, Jesse. Thank you for uh, being here. It's an honor to discuss jokes with someone who cares about jokes as much as I do. And we both have one in the title of our projects. I have it in multiple. I have a podcast called The Old yep. Ones, and I have a show called The New One. The show is on is a Broadway show. Uh, you saw the off-Broadway. And I saw the... I saw, oh, and then the, you saw the Broadway yeah, last night. Oh, holy cow. How do they compare the two? I liked it in both. I was, you know, the second time, because I sort of knew it, I'm then watching these people who may not know you watch it. It was good. It was just nice to be like, this is a big theater and it works and you, the space makes sense. It's different to see you from above than to see you sort of like. Were you in the Mez? I was, well, in the off-Broadway, it's, that's situated, I feel like. it's Everyone's looking down. And then I was on the, the orchestra, whatever the ground is at the. Yeah, it's a perfect size theater, the court theater. It's 1,100 seats. Whenever I show up on the road and it's an 1,100-seat theater and it's the config of the court theater, which is to say there's like 500 in the orchestra, 300 in the mez, and 300 in the balcony, I just go, this is going to be a great show. And then this one, I, gotta, I get to do that for 12 weeks. And we're talking about a joke from, at this point, over a decade ago but you said you wanted to start with a joke of some sort i just love that the podcast is about jokes and so i in my downtime i've been writing down jokes uh, that have nothing to do with the show i'm doing currently but i thought you'd like this one this is the other night i had a dream that i got into harvard and i woke up and i was so upset because not only did i not get into harvard but i'm 40 <laughs> it's called harvard dream right there that's great as i start writing jokes is is people see my shows and they 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 they're like, well, it's not stand up comedy, and uh, <laughs> that's the funniest yeah. thing people say to me. I'm like, eh. I've performed at like 500 colleges and like 150 comedy clubs, and I started out as a door person at the Washington D.C. improv. Like, I'm a stand up comedian. Yeah. You just you sometimes people don't notice because it's jokes strung together with jokes strung together with jokes that all form a, sto- a single story. And so they start out with like Harvard Dream. Yeah. And then eventually that'll be strung into something that's maybe a, a story about dreams, a story about anxiety, about feeling like I'm not accomplishing enough or whatever the thing is, and that's sort of baked in. Or a story about a celebrity golf tournament. <laughs> that's I mean, what we're th- going to well, into. You know, to prepare, I sort of listen to your material in order. And this joke is like, this is Mike Rubiglia in a way that, so in 2005, Two Drink Mike comes out. My Secret Public Journal Live comes out in 2007. And the sort of main thing that I realized is you're so much better at comedy by 2007. <laughs> it's like crazy because it's the first track. And you're like, in that time, you became like <laughs> the seed of Mike Rubiglia to immediately your Mike Rubiglia. So what happened between that time that you became so much more, like you you didn't sound like other people, you sounded like who you were? There's a few things that happened in that space of time. One is I jumped through a window. That happened. Oh, really? I wasn't talking about on stage yet, but it had happened. So that affected me. <laughs> You're like, I have to be better? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I got to be better. No, but it was a very seminal life moment. It was... Right after it happened, I started talking about, and like six months later, I started talking about it on stage. And and, and then I did The Moth uh, storytelling series at Aspen in 2003. And then I think in 2005 at Montreal, I did 
Jeff Singer's show Confessing It, where I told the sleepwalking story, or maybe that was 2000, yeah, 2005 show. And then there's a radio show that's syndicated called The Bob and Tom Show, and they would let me do a regular call-in segment called My Secret Public Journal, and I would read entries of a week in the life of what it was like on the road. I was just a road comic. And that was that was a, the sweet spot of that, I think, was like 2005 through 2007 or so. In that span of time, I started telling these longer stories. And then I start, and then it, it clicked in of just like, oh, okay, I'm better at this than I am at the other thing. Yeah. I mean, before Two Drink Mike, I always say this, but it's like I was doing Mitch Hedberg. I was doing my best at yeah. doing Mitch Hedberg, but I was doing Mitch Hedberg, or I was doing Stephen Wright, or who all my influences. And then at a certain point, I just started just becoming Mike Birbiglia, which is a, it, easier said than done. Uh, becoming yourself on stage. This joke, which I think is a good one to start, because it does, it is not the finished product, but it does, you can see you become the comedian that is you. Like it has a structure of a Mike Brigley story. In the, the out, at the end of the album or the end of the special, you say that you sing a song and you say your therapist told you to write a journal. <laughs> yeah. was, that a, was that how it started the journaling? Or were you always sort of like pulling from journals i was always pulling from journals the therapist conceit is a little fudged it's somewhat true but somewhat yeah. sort of fudged and but yeah but i'd always i'd always been and been writing in a journal to some extent and then and then at that point when i started doing the syndicated bob and tom call-in it became a job like i was working for this radio show unpaid basically like just yeah. filling in five minutes every week i would i would i would do i would read the journal on the show on the phone and i would say this week i'm performing in peoria or bloomington or um, any of the any number of the nashville tennessee any number of the the the, the, the midwestern southern uh towns that they syndicate to and then i would show up and people would be the people who listen to the radio show and and there and there was this sort of shorthand with those audience members that they they knew what this secret public journal was and it wasn't that many i mean these are comedy clubs so it's yeah. a, a couple hundred people a show but it was enough where it was like they didn't need me to fulfill the formula of comedy club comedian in order for me to survive the night so Let's let's go to the day of the celebrity golf tournament. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When did it happen? And, and sort of in the in a strict definition of the word remarkable, in that like it is something to remark upon. While it while it's happening, are you like this is a thing? While it's happening, it is pure horror. <laughs> it is embarrassing. It is pride swallowing. It's one of those life moments where you're just going. Have I made a huge mistake in my life by even claiming to be someone who makes people laugh for a living? I'm doing the opposite of what this job requires. I'm supposed to be bringing people joy, and yet I'm I'm appearing at their events, you know, raising money for a cancer charity and in, and accidentally insulting them. It felt horrible. And I was angry. Like I like I think that the thing that's not reflected in the in the in the stories is I was like calling Mike Berkowitz, who's my agent for a zillion years, 
since I started when I was like 23. And I was like, why did you do this to me? This was horrible. He was like, I'm so sorry. I'm sure it was better than you seemed. And, (laughs) you know, and I was like, no, it was, it was the worst. It was as, as poorly as it could have gone. I probably slightly too often on this podcast will note that comedians have a a sort of a spidey sense of like, this is a thing that I have a feeling about. That is the thing that will then be a thing that I could talk about on stage. And it uh, creates itself differently in different comedians. Some people are like, this has made me so angry I have to talk about on stage or this is so uncomfortable I have to talk about on the stage. So how does that materialize in in you? Like what is a feeling before we even talk about when you realize you're going to talk about on stage, but what is sort of the feeling that you think attracted you to even remembering this thing it was that i think i was on deadline for bob and tom's show and then i was just like what happened this week and then i wrote that down and i didn't even think it was going to be necessarily that funny i thought i had a couple good jokes like i thought that the good joke in it was this kid had leukemia <laughs> and everyone's crying because that's because it yeah. was a hundred percent true like i was like and it was true that I was crying. Like mm-hmm. all of these things are true as details. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to tell this story. If anything, this will get a laugh because it's just a truism of life. Like yeah. sometimes we're in these situations where we're we're crying or we're vulnerable and we all feel like we're we're going to we're about to do something that's going to go badly. And yeah. I was like, okay, that'll be funny and then the rest of it I'll just try to, with my stories, I always just try to have a beginning and an end. If there's a beginning and an end, yeah. I'll put it on stage. If I don't have that, I won't do it. But if I have a beginning and an end, I'll go, yeah, I'll go up and see how it goes. Yeah. And then a lot of times, like in the case of this one, I did it on the show and it was madness. Like they loved oh, really? it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they loved it. As entertainers, you're so often put in the wrong situation that there's something just utterly cringeworthy about you know the experience of that what did you have that you brought to the say on the radio show like what did you write down at that point oh i think i just wrote down the beginning middle and end which is i was asked to do this show i did it because it seemed like a it would be fine it wasn't fine it was terrible Mm -hmm. and then at the end of it my brother won everything in the raffle. I don't even know if I say this in the track. He didn't say he won. He just said he he alludes that he's going to win because everyone laughed. And he does. And there's actually an addendum to the story, which it didn't quite fit in the album, which is we went to the parking lot and he's holding all of his prizes. And people are walking by and they he and I look alike. And they think I'm I'm holding all the prizes. And they're like hey, congratulations, like, to him. But it it doesn't quite work as a joke, but it's a funny sort of detail. And then what happens? So oh, you so do then I do, it, I, do, I do it on the radio show, and it goes really well. And then I have this college tour with Comedy Central, and I have just come out with Two Drink Mike, and I've blown all of my material. And then I'm, coming, I'm going on tour, and so I'm like, well, I have to have more material, and I have to have a thing to, to give people. This, you know, and so I made the album, my secret public journal live in three months Wow! because I was going on tour in the fall. So I just made it. I just, I memorized all the words 
I didn't do it like a typical comedy album. Like I, I memorized it like a one act play or something. Mm -hmm. And I just, and I, I workshopped it like at the DC improv and a few places that were clubs that I was friendly with. And then I just recorded it and released it. And then people were like, this is his best album. I'm like, oh, I worked on the other one for 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> it's so weird how that happens. And then what was funny is that during, during Medium Man on Campus Tour was when I was workshopping all the sleepwalking, jumping through the window story. And, and so there was a lot sort of happening at the same time. In a practical sense, then sort of what is that process? If you have a story, you know, what would you be going up with? Where would you be going up? Are you tape recording? Are you sort of constantly rewriting? What is the sort of core of the microbiglia? So it started out like two drink mic. It would be, it would be, I would write setups and then I would write like 10 punchlines per setup. It was very rote. It was mm -hmm. just very like I created my own comedy curriculum. And then I, that's what two drink mic is. It's just a series of setups, punchlines, tag, 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 next joke. And then finding enough of them that have a thematic similarity. And then with the second one, with Secret Journal, it was like this thing where I wrote a piece, which was had a beginning, middle, and end. And then I put it on stage. And this has been my process basically ever since. I memorize the beginning and the end and as much of the middle as I can. And then I record it. Whatever comes out, comes out. I listen back to it and I write down what the improvisations mm -hmm. and tweaks are because I don't want it to f sound written. This joke, it it reminds me of, I feel like multiple times, I think in the John Mulaney episode, but also when I interviewed John Mulaney when I was writing, writing the profile of you, John Mulaney is like, Mike Perbigula taught me how to write jokes, which, oh. is, which is like the joke, which is you have a story, but each detail is an opportunity for a joke. Oh, that's interesting, yeah. Is Is that just sort of naturally of like, you're improvising off the story. Yes, that's it's correct. Like you, like you don't have an outline. You're just sort of like, okay, so then I will go to the this part of the story where I'm ironing and then... Well, yeah. And certainly like in this case, like, you know, and Rudy Giuliani was there. And it's like, that's true. I saw, I'm ironing my pants and I saw Rudy Giuliani in the locker room. Yeah. That, and that's a good detail. That deserves it, a punchline. And then what if it was George Bush? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and what if it were George Bush? And then there, there's your joke. But like, yeah, it's all that. It's all like, what are the real details of the story? And then while you're telling that story, how does that relate to what your core story you're telling is? Like there's this, yeah. there's this one way that someone described screenwriting once, which is that every movie, and I don't know who this, I don't know who said this, but every movie is there's a, there's a situation and it's bad and then it gets worse and then it gets even worse and then it gets even worse than that and then when you least expect it something happens and that's every movie and like jokes are like that too yeah. like i think that the best jokes I, even the maria bamford episode of this show where she's telling the story uh, she's doing the commencement speech and she's talking about her obsession with money. And then you're like, oh, that's that's funny. And then you're like, and she's like, and then I'm going to tell you how much I got paid. And you're like, oh, well, that's crazier than that. <laughs> yeah. And then I said 20,000. You're like, whoa, that's even crazier than that. And then she's like, don't kill yourself. <laughs> and you just go like, holy cow. 
that's so unexpected. Yeah. Like the the arrival to don't kill yourself from I'm interested in money <laughs> is so brilliant. Yeah. And and like I and that you know whenever I'm writing screenplays or 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 stories or whatever it's like you want or shows it's you you want it to be surprising but inevitable which is a hackneyed expression but it's just true you just well, ideally that's the best case scenario yeah I mean this story definitely has the oh he's a celebrity he he doesn't realize he's the celebrity it's the sort of oh that's bad and you're like oh the, his pants were wrong that's worse and then you're like <laughs> yeah. oh and then the kid with leukemia <laughs> oh that's even worse, worse. yeah and, and then, then yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I won the raffle how aware are you at this time of like so you have the sort of understanding of the joke mechanics of it, but the sort of story, how to make sure the story is still something people are following. I, there's a line that I think is really key to it that I only picked up at the end, which is, uh, and I, you emphasize, and I don't want to fail. <laughs> These are good people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that is in the times when I think like he's much better than when he was previous. That is oh, a yeah, much yeah. more veteran understanding of. They, that's a line no one will notice you're saying, but it's a way of making them care it's way ex, more. It's exposition. Are you adding that stuff in, or are you sort of just telling it and you realize, oh, it, they care more when I say that sentence or not that sentence? A lot of that is, and you and I are, I think, equally obsessed with the the, the science of jokes uh, by Jerry Seinfeld, because mm-hmm. uh, he's like the mechanic of this, But it, and he always says, and then he famously said in the Times recently to some controversy that the audience tells you a lot and and i think that that's a case of that like i would tell early versions of this on stage and i didn't have the line i don't i don't want to fail these are good people and people would just be like gee what this is you're kind of an asshole you know and you could feel the audience sort of recoil at the thing and then you go like oh they don't understand this thing that's crucial which is i'm just look i'm just like you guys i don't want to fail i don't want to screw over these people who are putting on this event that's a good for a good cause and then when you just throw that in then people are like okay now we can laugh at the crazy thing how much is it sort of the macro and then the micro of like how much are you led by the idea of what a thing is and then you write to that idea or does the idea come from writing you know like there's this doesn't have that compared to your future work there's bigger ideas that a lot of your things will might have but like are you first driven by that idea of like what do i feel about this thing let me write to it or do you write to him like oh i think this is what i feel about it ira glass has this really good prompt that he gave me once and i started working with ira about 10 years ago that's when i did my first story on this american life and he says um it's like you're telling the story and at a certain point you have to stop in the story and tell people how you feel about the story because they don't know. Mm-hmm. They're just interpreting the facts as they interpret them. But you have to tell them how you feel about it. And so you need to do that. And then you go back to the story. And then you go back to how you feel about it. And what it does as a comedian, a lot of how you feel about it can be jokes. Yeah. And that's fun because jokes are fun, right? That's why we're here. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. And then stories are fun. And so then if you put jokes and stories together, that's really dynamite, right? <laughs> All right. <laughs> what is this story about to you? It's about failing. Yeah. And trying hard and failing. I think that's yeah. what it's about. Um, Which is something that we all... I mean, I made a whole movie about it. That's what, that's what Don't Think Twice is about. Uh, so this joke features 
two jokes from the previous album. I'll get to the the first one later because that's part of a bigger thing. But uh, the Kenny G joke. Oh yeah, <laughs> gets gets brought back. Uh, beyond sort of just why to bring it back, but in general, you sort of will do this a lot. Like different parts of different jokes will come. Yeah. What do you like about showing things in different contexts? What you know? What does it shine? What does what does it do? Why do you sort of have these things? I used to do it. You know, the truth is, I used to do it more, and then the the wider reach that my stuff got, people started to complain about it sometimes, and they go, "No, he just only has five jokes." <laughs> and they're just like, "No, I have a lot of jokes. I just like I enjoy." You know, if the Kenny G thing contextually, it's a good way to describe what it was like. It's the best way I have to describe yeah. it. So that's what I'm going to use. I could use any number of jokes. That's the best one. And it's better because it is in this context. I think so. I think yeah. it is better. And then what I should have said was nothing is like that too. It's something that I repeated in a bunch of shows. What's interesting, you'll do certain things with it also with parts of your life because you're living your life. In the sure. new show, you'll be like... I don't know if you guys know, but I had this sleepwalking thing and you'll sort of have to recontextualize yeah. it. But in this, you do something very interesting in that context, which is you talk about sleeping. Like you talk about how hard it is for I you know, to get sleepy up. Sleepy Carl. It's it's like foreshadowing. You know, why I mean, obviously the story is not about the sleepwalking thing. And you can't be like, oh, I have this sleep disorder. You can't just sort of bring it up. But I think the question I think I ultimately have is I think before I once asked you what was the hardest story you told on stage, and you said the sleepwalking stuff. And I yeah. and I was sort of surprised. Probably because I just sort of so identified you with that. You're like, how can that be so hard? You talk about it all the time. Yeah. But in this case in which you sort of wink to it, but not necessarily reveal the whole story. Yeah. It might be interesting. What was it? What made it so difficult to actually direct uh, address head on? Well, the sleepwalking, you know, 50 years ago, they would have put me in a hospital against my will if I had had a sleepwalking disorder. So there's that. Yeah. You know. <laughs> Um, there's a mental illness component that's a little scary and it's a little out of your control. And I make this point in the show of there's people who've been known to kill the person they're in bed with while remaining asleep who have REM behavior disorder. There's so many dark and sad aspects of the sleepwalking and it's, there's no cure for it. So it's very, very sad, uh, in certain ways. And then it's also very funny in certain ways, which is why, I say in the sh- the new show that you saw, there are details in my life that are both setups and punchlines, and that's that's one of them. Yeah. I mean, the sleepwalking just is it's outrageous. It's an outrageous thing because it is sad and it's funny, which gets us to the the beginning. The joke sort of starts to be like uh, with your joke about that the stories are true. People go, "Is like, is that true?" And they're like, "Really? Yeah, yeah." Um, that, and that's a constant part of my life. It's never never gone away. I have some. Someone came up after the show. And she goes, that was wonderful. And she said all the things that you'd want in a compliment. And then she goes, do you have a kid? Yeah. So the whole show is. She thought the whole thing was constructed about me having a child. And I, and that I, 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 it's fi- all fiction, I guess. I don't know. In so much as you don't talk about sleepwalking for yeah, a yeah, variety of yeah. reasons. What am I leaving out of the yes, story? Yes, that is the thing that, I, and when I asked Chris Gether, did the same thing, which was like, I was like, how true is this story? It's like, all the stories are true, except for you don't say the things that are not important to this story. Yeah, or, or, or truthfully, boring. Yeah. Like, I think that the, 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 the secret of good storytelling is taking out the stuff that's just not. I mean, it's amazing to me how often people tell you stories 
and they don't realize that they're not stories. My my dad will call me and go like, "Oh, I got to tell you this amazing story. I was uh, I was over at the bakery, and uh, and Tom at the bakery, he said uh, he's heard of you." And then that's the end of the story. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, man, that's uh, that's sort of what I do is I try to make people hear of me. It's not that crazy of a twist. <laughs> you could have taught him how to, to tell it. I guess that would be a story, which is I have this son and it's hard for me to process that. he's <laughs> no. <laughs> well done. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of stuff like that. People tell stories and they're not really stories because because they don't weed out the, the boring parts. The boring part of the story, of course, is that that was a long day. Yeah. I mean, that's I'm covering 16 hours of time. When I woke up in the morning to when I went to bed, and I condense it into the eight funniest minutes yeah. that occur, or whatever twelve funniest yeah, minutes, or the, the things that that d- disprove the case of like right. It's like and oh, it, there's times where I was just playing golf and I was not being oh, like this absolutely, and I'm being perfectly nice to the people, and they're being nice to me, and they don't. <laughs> They're not mean about the fact that I'm not a celebrity. They don't care. You yeah. know what I mean? I think that is the thing that I think of all your the stories that is what makes a, this a storyteller beyond just sort of like, oh, he lived an interesting life. He's like, oh, he knows the parts to keep in and the parts to take out. Yeah, I think that's that's probably true. I don't, I, in my life, other than my my medical uh, things, which a lot of people have stuff, you know, Gethard has stuff and, you know, everybody has a, a story of some kind. If you think about this joke now that you've been doing stories for longer, how do you feel about the ending? Do you feel like you would have ended it differently? No, I, do, I I think I think this I think the story is still pretty funny, and yeah. that's and that's hard for me to say because most of my material from the past I, I just go like oh I don't know, but um I think the album on a whole Secret Journal Live if I had more time and experience I would have given it more pathos I would have dug deeper into why I was opening my journal up to people and. It ends with put it on paper song on guitar. It probably would have begun with a musical like prologue or something like that to make it fully unified. We'll be back with more Mike Rubicula after this word from our sponsor. Hi, uh, I'm just going to take a quick moment from talking to a comedian to talk to you, the listener of this podcast, and literally my best friend. So, uh, yes, you guessed it. This is one of those ads where a podcast host asks people to rate the show and write a review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, can you please do that? It helps tremendously uh, with our position in the Apple Podcast algorithm, or as Keenan Thompson says, as Al Sharpton, the algorithm. So, Please write and review. If you need help with what to say in uh, this review, how about either good or number one in the foreign language you took in high school? So I might write a review uh, that says bueno or numero uno. Not bad. Uh, So thank you so much for doing it. Uh, I love you so much. Uh, And now back to me. And we're back. So uh, if I do this correctly, I want to spend the rest of this interview talking about seven words, uh, which I think you know is coming because we talked about a little bit, which is I know I'm in the future also. Because it's everything. It's the, you know. It became everything, yeah. What do you remember about coming up with that line? I know came out of an organic idea of when I was telling Celebrity Golf for the first time, the audience really was judging me. 
And what they were judging was that I didn't know that it was insane for Mm -hmm. me to be telling a joke about cancer in front of cancer patients. And I had to be like, no, I know. And so I was, I did it organically just because being the sort of apologetic person who I am and the audience went nuts. I didn't even tell it as a joke. Yeah. It, It goes back to the Seinfeld thing. The audience tells you what's funny about you. He said, whatever, 40, 30 years ago. But the audience is laughing at, oh my God, he knows. He knows the thing we're judging him for right now. And so like, so much of jokes are capturing a catharsis that's existing in the room of people being like, that's how I feel about my parents. That's how I feel about my girlfriend or boyfriend or, or, or wife or husband or brother. And... But you're with that joke, you're doing it literally in the moment. They're judging you in real time. And then you're going, no, I know. And they're going, oh, he caught us judging him. And it's happening right now, which yeah. of course is like the most, one of the most exciting things about seeing live comedy is you see things in real time. And then I'm in the future also was just an improv. And then that was one of the ones I go, well, fuck, that's, yeah, that's fun. Do you ever think about making I'm in the future too? No, oh, no. And, and a lot of people paraphrase it as that, and I, I don't like it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think also is funny because it's wrong. <laughs> you know, like no one uses also as the final word in a sentence, which is, by the way, the, um, the my wife is a great poet, and she I say some of her poems in the show, and she has a book that I, I was handing you moments before the interview called Little Astronaut. She, she and I are writing buddies and we often just spend time in coffee shops writing alongside each other. She was quoting this Russian poet to me the other day who said, I'll, I'll try to find it because she actually wrote it down for me in this thing, this notebook today. These are these are the actual notebooks I read in the show. Yeah. You know? And yeah. uh, so she's just making extra ones. But this is, uh, wow. This is a Russian poet named Karms, who I hadn't heard of before. But he says, a work of art has to exist in a world as an object, as real as the sun, grass, a rock, water, and so on. It must also possess a slight error. In other words, to be right, it has to be a little bit wrong, a tad strange, and thereby truly real. And I think that that's, that's sort of crucial in relation to I know I'm in the future also is is, is like I'm wrong in the story but I'm also aware that I'm wrong in the story and there's and and in the new one the show you just saw there's tons of that yeah I would argue more than ever was it like a thing you then worked towards like it it, it's such a distillation I think of a lot of things that came afterwards did you have that like you named a tour I believe that yes I'm in the future also yeah that was my brother's idea because it was because he just thought it was a, a catchy idea and then we could have a lot of space and rocket imagery. It feels like a further articulation of... What I should have said was nothing. Should, yeah. Yeah. Which is, it does the same thing, but I know as in the future also is like literalizing what I should have said nothing, which is I'm. Yeah. we are doing the same thing. We are connecting. We're, yeah. Which I think a lot of your jokes in general do. Like I always talk about Massachusetts or whatever, which is like essentially that joke is about... <laughs> feeling the same thing at the same time as the audience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What I think it does is it creates sort of two people. There's the storyteller, yeah. Mike Birbiglia, and the person in the story. 
so much of that they're sort of like characters that you can follow. Do you feel that way at all? I, I've read interviews where like you've called what you do acting, especially as you do the shows more and more. Do you see these as characters? Do you see these characters are you? Who are they? Are they different? Yeah, I mean, look, you choose to tell people what what you choose to tell them about your life. So, you, so w- which is why you know one of the great storytellers of all time is Bill Cosby. And then you find out, oh, that's not that's not the whole story, and that's really sad. And it's yeah, it's devastating when you see that uh, because because you really believed in the storyteller. So yeah, it is a. It, I mean, it, yeah, these are. Whenever someone's telling a story of themselves, they're telling essentially, you know, uh, you know, this room we're in is just an office and, you know, I'm framing with my hands, but it's like you're taking that photo, like, which is essentially like a sixth of the room. Yeah. And you're saying that's the office, but that's not the office. But I try, but to, to, your, to your point, I try to be more honest to who I am than a lot of my heroes who uh, have proved out to be false. Like when I look at Cosby, I just go, fucking hey, like that. Not only is he an awful wretch of a person, but he's a entirely disingenuous artist. Like he, nobody's telling the whole story of their existence or choosing, but I really do try to dig as deep as I possibly am comfortable going, which is why like my girlfriend's boyfriend and the new one are both like really like riding the line of it could do some damage in my personal life. <laughs> you use the line first most uh, with Sleepwalk With Me. You um, In the recorded version, you say it after you hesitate, I believe, uh, saying the girl, your girlfriend at the time can join you in the photo. But I think I read that you said you would have that line at your disposal at different times, right? Throughout, like if different times if people were reacting in different ways, what were you using it for in Sleepwalk With Me? So much of Sleepwalk With Me is things that I'm apologizing for. And so that's where the, the I'm in the future also is. I mean, personally, I, well, the comics I like to watch, like we were talking about like Maria Bamford or Doug Stanhope, it's like the comics I like to watch the most are people who are, admitting something about themselves that is to use the darms or whatever the guy's name is is wrong and i think that as pop culture is right now people sort of don't want to see that like in other words we're drawn to comedians who really paint quite a picture of themselves (laughs) as as lovely people lovely flawless hilarious, frolicking people. And I actually, I personally as an artist don't think that's interesting. And I try to sort of like show some some ugliness, but then I have to use words, phrases, like I know I'm in the future also, to acknowledge that I know, I know that this isn't good, that I'm choosing to tell you this. And sometimes Ira, like we'll be working on a story, like an Ira will go, they don't know. They don't know that you don't think this is a good idea. Uh, if you notice the footwork of of the new one, there's a lot of like workarounds for explaining. Yeah, it's, that that I that I don't necessarily agree with my former actions. Before we get the new one, I, I will say that uh, in my girlfriend's boyfriend, you use it when your high school girlfriend asks you not to tell anyone she's your girlfriend. <laughs> yeah, which is a different use, which is basically like 
I know I was stupid then. Right, right, right. That's Which is not like I was immoral. I was just sort of like, I was not growing up. And then you don't use it in Thank God for Jokes, but I think of Thank God for Jokes a little bit like Sleepwalk and Boyfriend and New One feel like a trilogy. They are, And Thank God for Jokes is like the that Han Solo movie. It's my one-off. It's my one-off about jokes. Because it's more of a show about... If, in so much as I think of you as these two characters, like the storyteller. And the, yeah, it's, right. a, it's a show only about the storyteller. Yeah. In the new one, you don't say it. You do, you are worse in this show. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So why don't you say it? I mean, you do say, I know. I looked at the script uh, twice. You say the word, I know, but not <laughs> yes. in the same way. That's right. And Jen, and actually Jen, who's an additional writer on the show, my wife, I, I used to have it in and she goes, I really, I, th- I really think you should take it out because it starts to feel catchphrasy mm-hmm. and, and you don't need it. Why are you also fine with not having, not like, not telegraphing to the audience so much in this show in compared to the previous shows? It's like the Jake Johansson thing. It's like you want to convey the thing with as few words as you can. The the master of that, I think, is like Mitch Hedberg. Is you just go, oh my god, that joke only has like nine words in it. It's like perfect. An escalator can never be broken. It can only become stairs. It's like perfection. Were you going into it? Be like, I don't care if the audience thinks I'm nice. Yeah, I mean, I had to come to grips with that. I had to throw that out into the universe. And and a few people have been pretty judgmental about it personally. And to those people, I say, (laughs) well, the comedian who you maybe like more is maybe not telling you the whole story. I think what it does generally, which is it tells the audience that the person that they're hanging out with has already changed. I think that's right. And I think yeah. that this show is you have to figure out ways to then do that without telling them explicitly that you have changed. I think stand-up in general, by the nature of what the medium is, is you tell people things that have happened. You tell them how you felt at the time. Yeah. How did you try to approach showing the audience this well, broadly, if you don't want it? <laughs> trying to show the audience that you're changing opposed to telling the audience. It built backwards from the ending, which I won't give away, but it was a, it's, it's not a spoiler to say it's a moment of clarity at the ending. And what leads up to that is a lot of confusion and frustration and anger and, feel, and feelings of insecurity. Once I found the clarity, it's like, well, how, what are the stepping stones to the clarity that are logical? And how, how truthful are those to what I experienced? And how, how do those match up with like, you know, these are like you're seeing on this table, like my actual journals and things. And, how, and, and what can I pull from those that create the construction? So you like you literally go through journals like that seemed clear headed in the in the way that yes. the clear headed me existed. The early versions of this, like that I would do it like the comedy attic and uh, the DC improv in these various places. I would actually read my journals verbatim on stage. I would bring them out. I go, this is my actual journal. And I would read the thing. And then I would sort of riff on them. And then eventually the journals went away. That was a big decision that Seth and I made at a certain point is I... Like, let's not, let's try it without the journals. Like yeah. even a year ago, I was in Berkeley rap for the month in, in California and I, and I was reading the journals on stage, like at three points during the show. And the show ended on a journal entry. And then eventually I pulled it away. That's the most impressive part of the show to me. The ability to not have the journals there. Oh, interesting. It succeeds in a thing that comedy can't, doesn't usually do, which is 
we're just going to ha- you we're going to have scenes. That was a big thing when I took this to L.A. Largo, a bunch of film execs came up. Let's make the movie. Let's make the movie. It's very obviously a yeah. movie, right? It's like yeah. very. It's like scene, scene, scene. It's it's all these pictures. And then, and I and I had to just be like, no, no, no. It's uh, it's this. <laughs> <laughs> like people in the movie business, like they only see things as their own thing, which is what everybody would yeah. do. If you, you know, if you worked in in the in publishing, you'd go, well, this is going to be a great book about being a dad. And if you worked in, you know, whatever, it, it's everyone makes it what their own thing is. And when movies, it's like, yeah, they, they want to be a movie, but it's its own. You know, no, it's a live thing. So uh, this is not to sound antagonistic. I, as I, <laughs> I feel like I've pointed out that I think the show is good, but. Uh, this is your first show that is on Broadway. Why should this show be on Broadway? Why sh- why should you be on Broadway? So I sh- okay I shouldn't. Uh, I'm not gonna let you. I should. Let's say I let me rephrase. Assuming that you should, <laughs> and assuming this show should keep so, this all in. So assuming this good. show <laughs> exists, this show is a thing. You of are course. in it. But no, no. I'll why am, should this I'll show answer be on? without false modesty? My agent, Mike Berkowitz and John Mulaney, who's a close friend, are the two people in my life who urged me to bring this to Broadway. And the reason, and I did not want to bring it to Broadway, but they they said what you do is really special and it's, you've been doing it for years and nobody else does it. And this story in this show has the broadest appeal to all age groups and types of people, um, and it and you do great and you your shows are great in eleven hundred seats. That's why you should be there. I mean, I said to Berkowitz because he's my agent. I go, I mean, it, what stresses me out is the business side of it because the business of Broadway is a mess. Yeah, I mean, it's like. There's this great book called by Michael Rydell called Razzle Dazzle. It's about sort of the history of like corruption in, in, in Broadway. And it's wild. And I said to Berkowitz, I will do this, but only if you don't stress me out about how unviable this is as a business model, which it which it really isn't viable. Yeah. I mean, it's an insane proposition. It's someone has to put up millions of dollars to put up a Broadway show. It's insane. And so he go, he was like, yeah, I'll do it. Also, also uh, Berkowitz and Mulaney, I think both, Berkowitz more so, was just like, you got you to be ambitious again. People always goof around about me like that I'm, that I was like the first comedian with like an office. Yeah. Like in my 20s, I like moved to New York. I opened an office to write jokes in. And it was like, I lost that sort of like, I'm going to be the number one comedian in America. <laughs> and, and, and at a certain point, I was like, no, that's insane. No one's the number one comedian. Yeah. It does, art isn't, uh, you know, you can't be the best at art. You can just do what you do. And so I was sort of like, no, I'm just an off-Broadway uh, act. I make these off-Broadway shows. I do my best. I, I put them out. And then people, some people like them. And then I'm, that's what it is. And then, and then these guys were like, you got to push yourself. This is a, a, I feel like in the last year, a newly revisited question that people are pondering as they do shows that are like this, which is that it's clear that you are a stand up comedian. You do stand up, you do this as a stand up comedian does, but is this stand up? I mean, it just doesn't matter. Like the same way that the Hannah Gadsby Nanette debate, it literally doesn't matter what you call it. I saw Nanette, I think as you did, I saw it live downtown. 
in Soho in New York. I loved it. I watched it again on Netflix. I loved it even more. I just had a real experience with it both times. People go, it's not stand-up. It is stand-up. It's a one-person show. It's not a one-person show. It's theater. It's not fair. It doesn't fucking matter. It just fucking yeah. doesn't. No, it uh, like, can we all just get over the idea of labeling these things as like, this is a movie. This is a miniseries. This is a TV series. This is a special. This is a one-person show. <laughs> Shut up. You just like it. Or you don't. You tell people to see it. Or you don't. Just quit fighting about these stupid things. So yeah, like I think of myself as a comedian. If you don't want to call me a comedian, I don't care. <laughs> Who cares? <laughs> that sound uh, means it's time for the final segment, which oh, wow. is the laughing round. It's like a lightning round, but because it's comedy, it's a laughing round. Do you have a joke joke? This is something Henry Phillips, who's a great comedian, he did that movie Punching the Clown. Did you ever see that? And then he did a sequel to it. It's really great. Anyway, Sarah Silverman's in it. The It's great. Henry's great. And I've, I've toured with him quite a bit. And he has this joke construction that I think he and a friend of his created. It's sort of a cat skills joke construction. And it's not mine, but I, but I use it a lot, <clears throat> which is um, it's two pronged. So it's like I'm going to... Uh, I'm going to pick up some clothes in uh, in 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 that uh, that state that Trenton's in today. New Jersey. New Jersey's new pants, new underwear, new socks. I mean, I, I really need a whole new wardrobe. <laughs> so this is a, it's like a car trip game, yeah. right? So you do that on car trips. So you go like, uh, I, I'm literally thinking of what yeah. you, you know. Um, you know, Susan Collins is going to have a tough race up in that state in Portland in 2020. Uh, Oregon? Oh, Maine. Mainly, but also <laughs> partly. You know, even in the districts are going to be hard. <laughs> that joke is... It's... Uh, I forgot the name of it. There's a, It's like a street joke. It's but like it, a but joke like joke. that rhythm, the when you interrupt people, I forgot there's like... There's a name that... Is has there a, a name for it? Yeah. Well, it's like an well, old Volvel style thing. It's an old Volvel style. Yeah, yeah. Can you do an uh, impression of yourself? One time Fred Armisen and I did a college in Jersey and he came on and, and did me and it was shockingly insulting and accurate and then bill Hader also those two guys he has one too those two guys do wickedly mean impressions <laughs> that are so good so that's your way of saying you don't want to do an impression of well <laughs> no well okay so bill Hader's impression and jen and i actually quote this a lot because it's it's funny because it has no words of anything that i've said ever in mm -hmm. anything, but yet it sort of captures a thing where he goes, and it, part of it's in the face, so you, only you and Michael see it, but it's like, and it was my car. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, a lot of it's in the face, in the hands, it's like, yeah. but it was my car. And it's it's it makes me laugh a lot joke you'd steal in so much as it's a joke that was yours it's always yours no one will know that anyone else had the joke it's in your act you can always have it my i think i think arguably my favorite joke is is uh mitch hedberg's steamboat operator joke which is i said to my dad oh no i was writing a letter to my dad and i and i said i, I wanted to write i really but i instead i wrote rarely and then i, I wanted to finish the the lines I just I rarely 
uh, operate steamboats. <laughs> Quit trying to act like I'm a steamboat operator. This letter has gone uh, south or whatever. This is like such a great. I love the joke because it's sort of like quintessentially like what my favorite jokes do, which is it starts out as one thing. It starts out as like I wrote a letter. And then it's like, it does the my favorite thing that jokes do, which is it starts out as a thing. And then it zooms out and it's another thing. Then it zooms out and it's another thing. And then it expresses an emotion. Yeah. Like it's about being misunderstood. I feel like you talk about, well, you used to talk about pizza all the time in your act. A lot, yeah. And I know that you order pizza when you have people read your scripts. What yep. is a, a pizza order for Mike Berbiglia? What is an ideal topping combination? Last night after the show, I walked down, I walked 44 blocks to the comedy cellar from my show because I just wanted to be somewhere mm-hmm. else. Uh, and I just wanted to sort of like go for a walk and then, and then like see friends. And uh, I saw like Ryan Hamilton and Nikki Glazer and Jessica Kirsten, a bunch of people who I really like over there. And then I, I walked over alone to the place on the corner, not the place on the corner of McDougal, Joe's. Yeah. I, then I walked over to Joe's, which is right next to like Dos Toros and yeah. like where that triangle park is. And I had a pepperoni slice there. And I think a pepperoni slice from there is as good as anything. You alluded to it, a joke that's never worked that um, you will uh, always think is so funny and... You'll go to your grave thinking it's funny, but enough audiences have told you it doesn't work. Uh, but you will never believe them. I think it was like the stick insects joke, and it was like fit uh, I use in Sleepwalk with me, the movie where I go. I'd hate to be a stick insect because everyone's always all the other insects are always bumping into you. You gotta be like, watch it. And they're like, yeah, you're a stick. And you're like, yeah, I have eyes. And they're like, yeah, they were closed. That works in the movie because it's like it works. When well, you it like works the because it doesn't work. Yeah, 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 totally. That's what the question does. It's, too. it's. I know. I it knows itself. I was like, it, I it know work. that joke is bad. Yeah, without, yeah, but everyone hates it when. Well, that was one of the tricks of Sleepwalk with Me. The movie is we had to come up with. Jo- we had to use jokes that we knew were funny, but that people wouldn't laugh at, but would laugh at not laughing yeah. at. It's a complex thing. Comedy, comedy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, go pick up your kid. Thanks. Thanks for doing this. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. That's it for another episode of Good One. Mike Rubigula's The New One is on Broadway through January 20th. Listen to my secret public journal live wherever you stream. Follow Mike on Twitter, at Burbigs. Good One is produced by Mike Comte, with production help from Marissa Melnick. Justin D. Wright did our theme song. Rate, review, and write the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please! And hey, uh, if you know anyone who might like the podcast, maybe tell them. What the heck? You can email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com. I am Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. We'll be back next week with a new episode and a new joke. Have a good one. That was a HeadGum Podcast.